fly fishermen paralyze themselves with all these super technical, complicated details. Small streams just taught me a lot. Uh, A bear had ripped the screen out of my camper shell, but the craziest bear story. This is Southeastern Fly, and you're listening to the Angler's Influence Podcast with our guest, Dan Munger. Dan, welcome to Influence. Thank you, David. Excited to be here. Uh, And welcome to the uh, conference room, i.e. the studio, uh, (laughs) the mobile studio of uh, Southeastern Fly. And uh, so Dan, Dan is the owner of Fly Fishing Made Easy. His journey, his path uh, to get there, he guided for eight years, is that right? Roundabout, yep. Okay. You worked in some fly shops? I did, yep. What did you do in the fly shops? Uh, so the first fly shop I worked for, I was just guiding, so I didn't work in that shop at all. And then um, then transitioned to a, a lodge and resort that had a small fly shop on property here in East Tennessee. Was guiding out of that and teaching a lot of beginners, and then transitioned into a big fly shop, Little River Outfitters in Townsend. And then I, I helped manage that shop and directed the fly fishing school. Oh, okay. All right. Fly fishing made easy. Uh, before we really delve into what we're we're going to talk about and your influences, uh, tell us tell me tell us just a little bit about fly fishing made easy. Sure, it's uh it's essentially a resource for people to learn uh, how to fly fish, and I've noticed for sure that people fly fishers tend to make things a little more complicated or more difficult sounding than they have <laughs> to be, and I think it's just kind of the nature of a lot of fly fishers and. So it is a website and then an Instagram and a Facebook page. Um, There is free content for people, uh, but then on the back end, there's also an online course that I'm working to get launched. And that course will take people from not knowing anything, teaching them a a really simple process to learn knots and casting and how to read water, uh, how to buy the gear. And the result is they halfway know what they're talking about enough to go to the water and uh, you know, do a little bit of suffering. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it is amazing how many people can cast really well. They can, they can mend really well. They can fish really well. But when you say, Hey, just tie this on, they look at, look, they look at me like, I don't even know how to do that. You know, I don't even know how to tie it. Now, do you want me to tie, you know, like I'm tying my shoe. What do you want me to do there? I mean, it, it truly is amazing how many people struggle in the knot area. I think I really do. And, and, you know, just from the, from the fly shops and, and teaching beginners a lot there. And even, even people that have been fishing a long time, I think that's probably the thing that I, that people get the most frustrated with because of eyesight. And, you know, of course the tip, it's small and clear a lot of times, but the thing is, you know, it's, you can get quick at tying knots if you just practice a little when you're not on the water. You know, I, and I tell people just as you're watching TV, yes. you know, you're watching the ball game. Go first of all, go to go to a, a can we go to a, a large box retailer or wherever and buy just the cheapest twenty pound test you can find. Yes, and just sit and tie knots with it. Just cut five ten minutes an evening for two or three weeks, and you'll be able to tie them in the dark. For sure, it's automatic. It's yeah. crazy, and it just it doesn't like you say it doesn't take that much time. No, it's, it's just, just a little a little bit of effort, and it's gonna. It's going to make it easier to change flies. It's going to make it easier if you get tangled to not get frustrated when you have to retie. 
make it easier to change from fishing a dry to a nymph setup. You know, it's just, it helps so much. Yeah. And it's, it's just muscle memories. Over totally. All it is. Let's yep. just, let's call it for what it is. Yep. We would like to make it more complicated. Totally. Than that. Yeah. 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 You're yeah. right. We exactly. would. We try to make things complicated, yep. but it, uh, it, it really, it really will become muscle memory if they'll just, just got to get out there and do it. Yeah. Well, let's talk, uh, uh, just a little bit about what's going on here. So for the first time listeners, let's, let's, uh, we're going to go ahead and tell them what this concept is all about. So what we're doing is interviewing folks uh, in the fly fishing industry, and we're not necessarily going to talk about uh, the businesses that we're in or anything like that. What we're more interested on, we're more interested in on uh, on influence, is what were the influences that that uh, have shaped your path, uh, and people, places, things, ideas that have shaped your path in fly fishing. Like I said, not necessarily our businesses, but just just fishing in general, fly fishing in general. So everybody's got somebody, something, something like that that kind of kicks them off and gets them started. So tell tell me about uh, let's let's just get into your first influence. Who would that be, or what would that be? That is definitely um, my grandfather. I call him Papaw. We all call him Papaw. And um, you know, it started. We have a pretty big family. I have a lot of brothers and cousins and sisters. They're all, you know, around our same age. Papa and my grandmother lived on Smith Lake in North Alabama, but our house was five minutes from theirs. Okay, so you were close to close to Grandma and Grandpa. Yep, there every weekend. You know, sometimes during the week, the lake was was right there. So what? When was that? Back in the Back in the eighties, probably it, like as, as early. Yeah, I was born in eighty six, okay. so as early as I can remember, it was it was all of us there. You know, I don't want to say before we could walk. That's a bit ridiculous, but I mean, it, my earliest memories are you know my little sister holding the cane pole and a bobber and eating a sausage ball for breakfast, and us all at the boat house trying to catch bluegill or whatever. You know, dude, that could so be me. <laughs> Cane pole and a sausage ball. I love it. Yeah. Um, so what was this, what was Smith Lake back during like back during the eighties? It's tough. It's still tough. It's a really deep. It's it's probably the, the deepest lake in Alabama. I mean, there are places that are three hundred feet deep on the lake. Incredibly deep. It's a it's a dammed up canyon, um, and so it's really tough. The spotted bass fishing. It's a really good spotted bass fishery. It's it can be because the water's so clear. The nutrients are fairly low. You know, I find this stuff out now after suffering through a lot of <laughs> high school years. But uh, it is stuff that's a really good striped bass fishery. What kind of fishing did you do? I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume, I'm going to go out on a limb and, and think you probably didn't fly fish right off the bat, not at that age. No, not at all. I was, you know, there's not, there are not many, especially back then. There weren't many fly fishers in Alabama. And so uh, Papaw doesn't fly fish really. Um, and he, he Carolina rigged a lot that's pretty much all he did and so if there's anybody listening that doesn't know what that is it's essentially a huge you know one ounce weight and then you have glass beads around that weight that clack and make noise and then your your soft plastic lure goes three or four feet behind it so it enables you to get your your fly or your lure down really deep and feel the bottom really well and so I remember at a very early age um myself my older brother and then my cousin and his older brother that are all we're all around the same age all four of us in the boat with papaw <laughs> and hooks flying and when papaw could get a spare moment to fish he was carolina rigging and it was fascinating even at an early age because i would 
uh, he would he could tell us how deep the water was based off how long it took for the the lure to sink. You know, uh, he could tell what the bottom was like. He would say, "Oh, there's a brush pile, or oh, there's you know, there's a rock pile, or whatever. That's a mud bottom." Fascinating because it made the it made the lake um, you know more than two dimensional. Right. It was amazing, and um, and then you know he, he when he would get a, a strike. With a Carolina rig, you have to kind of wait and let him take it, and uh, so he would he would stand up. You could tell he was getting a bite, and then when the, when he was convinced, it seemed like he would wait for five minutes to set the hook. I mean, I know it wasn't that long, but he'd wait, and then he would wind down and just do a big hook set. And when you're you know six years old and you've got a two hundred pound grandfather in, in the front of the boat, and he really lays into a fish, it's a it's a pretty big event. <laughs> kind of a hallelujah moment right yeah, there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, And his excitement level when we caught, when, he, when any of us caught a fish, I mean, it's pretty mir- miraculous that any of us caught fish. <laughs> Wait, I mean, you know. Let's face it, the dude's a saint. He is. Four kids in a boat. Absolutely. Four boys yeah. in a boat. Is yeah. that right? Oh, yeah. And oh, there were cool. times where there were more. I mean, you know, we my cousins, we all line up gender and age. So, you know. Uh, older brothers and then me and my cousin and then our younger sisters are two years younger than us and then I have a younger brother that's six years younger than I am so wow there were times that it was and I literally never got hooked nor remember any of us hooking each other I'm not saying it didn't happen but I don't I don't remember it did you ever catch a fish because <laughs> my, my next question is are you sure there was a hook on everybody's that's a really great question <laughs> like there maybe there were times where there weren't i do remember one fish that was it was very memorable i didn't even catch it and we were all in the boat we were at this place called uh, raccoon creek on smith lake and that's not giving away a secret spot or anything okay. all i remember is um older brother hooking a, a, at the time it felt like a massive catfish it was four pounds five pounds you know like it was it's a nice nice catfish yeah at the time i mean it was it might as well have been 50 to me and he caught it and um papa just could have been doing backflips we all uh we all so he put that fish on a stringer and we all kind of took turns holding the stringer you know took the fish back to the dock the poor fish i mean a fish ended up my cousin i think my cousin was uh was playing with the fish on the stringer and ended up throwing throwing the fish, and the stringer came off the post, and the fish swam off with the stringer, you know. Oh, no. But th- there are still pictures of that fish. That was a very memorable fish. I was probably five or six. You if know. he made it through that, he could probably make it through anything. <laughs> He's probably pretty resilient fish nowadays, yeah. <laughs> uh, somebody's down there with another story going, yeah, I caught this catfish, and it was I had a stringer on yeah. it. Yeah. It was almost – it looked like it was 10-year-old stringer. Yeah. <laughs> You know, instead of a three or four pound catfish, now it's a five or six pound, seven pound yeah. catfish. Yeah. So I think we all kind of have somebody uh, that uh, that kind of kicks us along down the path. You know, and it sounds like your papa was was one. My my grandfather's both of them fished, so I was kind of in that same. I'm kind of in that same boat a little bit. So when did you start fly fishing? Um, so the first. The first experience I had with it was we used to come up to Gatlinburg to camp as a family on occasion, um, and or, or you know we'd stay in a little small cabin or whatever. And so I bought, I saved up some money. I, I used to see guys fly fishing in the Smokies, and it always looked super intriguing. So I bought a cheap uh, rod and reel combo at Smoky Mountain Angler in Gatlinburg, and I was probably 
14. Best I can tell. I know I know I wasn't old enough to drive, so I think I was 14-ish. My older brother and I, he already had a really cheap combo. And um, so we spent that those few days casting in a creek and had no clue what we were doing. I mean, I was eating up with bass fishing. You know, I had Bassmaster Magazine subscriptions or whatever. I was obsessed with it. No clue what to do in a small creek. And so we ended up catching some little uh, war paint shiners, tiny, tiny little shiners. And I thought they were trout. I didn't know what they were, but but that was the first, you know, first experience with it. Obviously, they're trout because you can only catch trout on fly rod, right? Can't catch anything else. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. That's what that's what we think when we first start out. You know, yeah, going trout fishing. I'm going fly fishing, so I've got to be trout fishing, right? And that's yeah. not necessarily always the case. Yeah, and if I would have known that, you know, in Alabama, it's I mean, Alabama's an awesome place as a fly fisher. You've got so many, you know, most of the bass fishermen stick to the big lakes. So if you've got there's small creeks and rivers all over. So if you've got a fly rod and you want to go catch bass or, you know, white bass, stripers, carp, my gosh. it's Oh, carp, yeah. Sheesh. It's, when, when I think of a small stream in Alabama or a small river in Alabama, I think of uh, 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 like a bluegill, some smallmouth, and big snakes. That's what I think That's about. pretty accurate. Yeah. <laughs> cotton, that's one thing I love about East Tennessee is I don't have to worry about cottonmouths. Right, right. Yeah, you're just just the copperheads and rattlesnakes and mm-hmm. such. But yeah, now you've got now you've been exposed, uh, if yeah. you will, to fishing, and then then you're exposing yourself to fly fishing, yeah. trying to get yourself underway doing that. What uh, so what's what's your next step there? Yeah, so it, after that, it went. Um, I, I did late high school years. I did start catching bluegill out of a small creek close to the house we grew up in. Perfect practice right Perfect. there. Perfect. Like, because you get a lot of strikes, you know, they're, if bluegill were four pounds, average four pounds, I wouldn't fish for anything I else. wouldn't either. You know? I never would go for <laughs> yeah, trout. No way. So. Straight up bluegill yeah, all day long. No question. And so then uh, my freshman year of college, my older brother and I both went to the University of North Alabama. At least I, I went there. I started there. I finished at Auburn, uh, War Eagle. Ooh, it's a bad time to say War Eagle in, in the state of Tennessee right now. But In, in 2035, nobody's. They they could be on top. Who yeah, that's yeah, yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so um, so at that at that school there was a smallmouth creek, perfect weightable, beautiful smallmouth creek, and I really doubled down and and at the time I was fishing uh, out of a fishing bass tournaments out of a club there in North Alabama, and I showed up. I, I remember this very well. I showed up at the boat ramp. It was it was probably December. It was cold, cold, drizzly winter morning, Saturday morning boat ramp to put the boat in for the tournament and I sat in line for 45 minutes to put the boat in and it was sub freezing outside and so I put the boat in went fishing I went to and and actually I was fishing as a non-boater so I was with another guy you know I was a non-boater I didn't have a boat I had a small tiny john boat but and so we went to our first three or four spots and each spot had at least four boats on each spot and I thought man I'm done with this what am I doing? I did, you know, I don't do this to sniff gas fumes and right. have a crowded lake. There's water everywhere. So I kind of made a conscious decision. I'm going to focus more on fly fishing. So my brother and I would go wade fish this creek for smallmouth and catch really nice smallmouth out of this little creek, and it was addicting. Um, then after my sophomore year of college, I got a job in Rocky Mountain National Park mm. uh, in Colorado, and it all, I guess, the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> Next time you're spending all your time and half your money on fly fishing. That's it. That's pretty much what happened, yeah. So now now you've graduated 
uh, into uh, fishing in the park, and, and, and we're going to talk about that a little later, I hope. Yes. yes. I, sure, I sure hope so anyway because it's yes. a great place to be. We will. But uh, what's, tell us about another, maybe another influence that you have that might have took you down further down the path. Sure, and it, it kind of correlates with that transition and getting the job in Rocky. And I, I don't remember exactly um, when I got this book. It was sometime between my freshman year of college and my sophomore year, best I can remember. Maybe a little later, but um, it's called a book called Instinctive Fly Fishing. And I, I'm not, I, I do quote, read a lot of books now, but most of them are audio books because I'm the type where if I sit still and try to read a book, uh, I usually get distracted. Right. This book, though, um, it's written by a guy named Taylor Strait. He's a longtime guide uh, in New Mexico. And the book is kind of based around the premise that uh, fly fishermen paralyze themselves with all these super technical, complicated details And it should be that you just kind of build some skills and then go to the water and fish like a, like a hunter, like a predator almost, you know? And he, the book is really full of really, really practical tips. Um, The way that he lays it out is just really, really just made sense to me. Uh, And so I read that book over and over. There's a section in there uh, about, um, you would probably find this interesting. There's a section about, uh, what to say and how to approach a guided trip as a client. There's also a section about um, how to approach a guided trip as a guide. I probably you know? need to read that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is amazing. It's hard It's hard to, to kind of explain how awesome the book is. But, you know, I know for sure there's a sentence in that book that says something to the effect of fly fishermen would rather choose convoluted solutions over simple ones. And hmm. the book is kind of out to, uh, and it's based off 30, 40, you know, who knows how many years as a fisherman, but a lot of other, um, experience guiding clients. You know, he says he started, he started wanting to write the book. So he would, um, he, he took a, a tape recorder out to the water and he would record the things that he thought of. And then he says that uh, it started sounding like all the other stuff he was trying to be different than, you know. <laughs> so then he kind of switched and said he, was, he, he really started paying attention to what his anglers, what his guide clients, what questions they had. And what were the practical, maybe not so sexy things that made a big difference. And that's kind of what the book is, is situated around. So that book was very influential. I read it multiple times. I actually picked it up after I talked to you, you know, a few weeks back and, and went back and reread it. And um, I'm going to get it for quite a few of my buddies that have been fly fishing for a long time because uh, it's just really, really good. So as you as we get it, this is so fly fishing. This is so fly fishing, right? what you're saying. We get into fly fishing. It's It looks complex, so we think it has to be complex. A friend of mine very often says – Complexity without necessity. That's his. That's kind of his saying. Whenever, huh. you, whenever you try to think of some new, off the wall, convoluted idea, yeah. and he's like, complexity without necessity. And you, okay, bring me back to the basics because that's what really, in the end, is probably going to catch more fish than anything. Is consistently doing the right things. Yeah, yeah. I, th- I, I there's a lot to that, and you know, I don't, I don't exactly know what it is that makes us choose convoluted solutions i think it's partly that um you know there's a whole facet to this that we don't really 
see, you know, with the weather changing and the fish turning on and turning off. And, you know, so you do something that's kind of off the wall. You, you change your parachute atoms to uh, parachute atoms with red thread instead of black thread. And then the fish turn on and you think, oh, that red thread makes all the difference, right? <laughs> right. So it's, there's that whole realm of where that you, you know, sometimes you can't explain why it happens, but you got to find, you know, everybody wants to find the reason that it, that it happened. So I don't know. It's, it's interesting for sure. I think we we try to think the fish are smarter than they are. Yeah, agreed. You know, and it's agreed. probably mostly instinct and, and survival for them. Yeah. And we're just trying to fit in there somewhere. And yeah. Like you said, that that parachute atoms with the red thread, man, that's the ticket. And you should have been here on Wednesday to fish it. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, I think with trout, too, I, I think a, something I've thought about is, you know, a lot of people, of course, you have to get a good drift with trout. And, man, you know how picky they can be with a drift. Oh, yeah. But it's not that they're sitting there going, oh, Daniel's on the other end of that line and yada, yada. It's that, that, that dude sits in that spot for hours, hours if he's undisturbed. And it's, you know, it just kind of has, it seems like he just has a picture of what it's supposed to look like. It's like if that cup of coffee right there hovered off the table. You drink, <laughs> you drink coffee all the time, right? You know it's not supposed to, you don't know why. Right. It just right, happens. Yeah. And you're like, that's weird. Yeah. And it's, I, there's not much thought process. It's just different. Right. And of course, they're scared of everything, right? They are. <laughs> they are. Yeah, that's uh, it's it's interesting because I'll tell people, you know, work on your drift, work on your drift. I don't know how many times I say mend per trip, hundreds <laughs> probably, you know, until they uh, until they get it in their mind, you know, like three hours in of a four hour trip, they're starting to mend without me saying something, and, yeah. and it's all about presentation, you know, that you gotta you gotta present the fly just right. And what I think they do, this is so this isn't. There's no science behind this, so don't go off and say, well, David Perry said, you know, because there's Too no science, right? <laughs> but what I see is the fish sitting there watching everything that comes down the down the river and just basically taste testing it. You yeah. Know, if he's hungry, he's going to taste test it. Or if it's hungry, it's going to taste test it. And if your fly kind of looks like everything else and they just happen to be taste testing that day, they're probably going to test your fly. Yeah. But if it's, you know, I like to say if we want a dead drift in certain areas, and if your fly's going through the water like a water skier, it probably isn't going to get hit. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So Agreed. Yeah. It's really, there's there's some technical things that, that do work. Yes. But overall, I don't think you have to, it doesn't have to be complicated. Yeah. But. Yeah. I I think that getting a, I think, well, I, I, it's hard to, it's hard to pinpoint, but um, getting a good drift is maybe the, maybe the most important skill I might say, you know, you give somebody some, maybe somebody can cast. Well, you give them as far as you know, the best fly for that day, you put, you tie their leader up the right way. You do everything. Even if, even if they don't spook the fish, if you don't get that good drift, doesn't matter what fly it is. A lot of times, you know, I have cut a fly off of one anglers, uh, tip it and put it on the other because the other guy wouldn't shut up about he had the wrong fly and, <laughs> and just swapped the flies. That's all I did and said, all right, go back to fishing. And the the guy that was catching fish continued to catch fish, and the guy that wasn't catching fish continued not to catch fish. Yeah. So presentation really is it. So so you're here. You are you're uh, you're in Rocky Mountain National Park, mm-hmm. and what are you what are you doing in the park let's talk about that i worked for the park service uh so i got a job the first summer i was out there i got a job building uh restoring rock walls that the ccc had built 
you know, it's definitely a young man's job. Boy, that is. Yeah. But it was super interesting because we would, um, kind of a little bit of a history nerd, you know, and, uh, so it's a whole crew that restores those rock walls to, you know, literally jackhammers them apart, numbers them, draws schematic diagrams of them, and then busts up the footer, rebuilds the footer, and then puts the rock wall back the same way it was built, you know, by the CCC. So that was my job the first summer out there. And then I started working for the trail crew after that. So uh, the only rock wall I can think about in the park, there's two. There's one on the Granby side. And I was on the Estes Park side. Were you? Mm -hmm. So Rainbow Curve, there's a huge rock wall there with 10,000 chipmunks. That rock wall is Is the one. I I rebuilt that rock wall. Did you really? That would have been in, um, that would have been 2008 maybe. Summer of two thousand eight, I could I could be off by a year. But everybody yeah, stops there. Everybody, yeah. And so imagine working uh, in that parking lot. I mean, I I told the story about what we were doing. You know, it seemed like thousands of times. But close off part of the parking lot. You know, big. And then you know, on the other side of that rock wall, it's a pretty steep drop off. Yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, we're hopping around like billy goats down there. <laughs> um, yeah, amazing. The guy that heads up that rock wall crew is is. A really sharp, bright guy, and he's passionate about you know the history and stuff. And it's just it's interesting how you know he's he's rebuilt a bunch of the walls along along Trail Ridge Road there. So, so do you think the park influenced your fishing at all? It's it's definitely my next influence. Is yeah, it really? It is no yeah. question. Because I all told, I spent four seasons out there, um, and you know some during college, some after college, and so. You know, I lived in park housing all four years, but the second and third year I lived and had, uh, you know, I was super fortunate. Sometimes I can't believe it, but I had a trout stream in my front yard for those two years, cheap little, little cabin. And that, that was, that was a game changer because up until that point, anytime I got to go trout fishing, I felt like it was, you know, I dreamed about it all the time. And then it was a privilege when I got to go to a trout stream and then you kind of start feeling rushed and maybe you're not able to sit and take everything in the way you want to. But out there, it was like I crammed years of that type of fishing into, you know, a couple of summers. I could get off work and look down and see trout rising. And so I pretty much got to spend every day on the water, which was uh, a wow. big, a big, big teacher for me, for sure. So you could you see the trout stream from wherever your cabin was? For sure, yeah, I could really? see it from literally. I could pull my truck up, get out the truck, and look down and see part of the stream. Uh, yeah. So if a fish is feeding and you could see it, you just tie on a whatever. Yeah. And walk down there yep. and fish for you could probably if you lived right there you could fish for one fish. Oh, for sure. There's and, these, yeah. There's these cabins uh, up there, so. I don't know. It's been four or five years ago. Me and a friend of mine were out there. We we had like four or five hours, maybe, to max to spend up in the park. We had some other stuff going on, and I talked him into going up to the up into Rocky Mountain National Park through Estes Park. We were on that side, mm-hmm. and uh, so I looked at the map and I said, "All right, here's this trout stream that's running through this big old meadow," <laughs> and so we pull up in this little dirt parking lot, and and uh, I get out. It parked right beside these the if I remember this, it's been a little while, but if I remember it right, they there were some mailboxes there, it's just like you would see in an apartment, maybe in uh, in Brooklyn or somewhere, just all of them, all of them right there. So we parked right beside that, and uh, and this stream was literally through. It was called Moraine Park, 
was through this meadow and it was just like twist and mad. back and forth and back <laughs> and we fished i didn't catch anything but anyway so that's the yeah i said i'm about to make you mad because that's the meadow that i i was able to live in really cabins there are some private cabins on the south side of that of that meadow. They're private, and then there are some cabins that are park service cabins, and that was the meadow. So if I'm Moraine Park. They're right up the hill there from these mailboxes that I'm talking about, mm-hmm. aren't they? Yeah. You keep going up that gravel road through the gate. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. Amazing. It was – it's the prettiest meadow. It's it, If you think about Rocky Mountain trout stream going through a meadow, that is the image that pops in your head. Would absolutely. you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's why I wanted to go there. Yeah. On the other side, the Granby side, you've mm-hmm. got the Colorado coming mm-hmm. out and running down that valley. But uh, but but on the on the Estes Park side, yeah. So you lived in these cabins. I lived in those for two summers. Yeah. Two summers. So that had to have influenced you. It was the, yeah. It was amazing. It was just it was just like I say it was it was it was like spending cramming years and years of of fishing and time on the water into you know three to six months at a time wow yeah it was amazing you know i mean you know in the whole experience too with with wildlife and and really learning like you say you could fish for one fish i mean there were certainly fish that you you recognize there are fish that that you know there was one spot there was a fish i never caught him i called him the shark he was (laughs) massive massive brown trout you know and he was up under an undercut you you rarely ever could see him every once in a while he'd slide out and like i said i never caught him um yeah, and fishing those small streams is really uh, was really helpful for me because it it almost it simplifies it in some ways because you don't have to decide you know in a a, a stream that's a hundred feet wide you don't have all those decisions to make on a small stream you know don't spook the fish uh, you can see where they are you can see where they like to hang out. Um, so the small streams were a really, really big teacher. Maybe that's why I like living, you know, near the Smokies now, because small streams just taught me a lot. Right. Yeah. So yeah, very influential. A hundred yards of a small stream could have every single type, especially up there. Yeah. Every type of water in it. You know, just a hundred yards or two hundred yards of stream could have everything that you could ever want to fish. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and I, you know, I noticed even, even. You know, I started my later years out there. I started guiding in my off time for a fly shop out there. And, uh, you know, I even noticed that there was a section of, of a river that I liked to fish. And it was a really popular river in Rocky Mountain. There was one section that had these big, I don't know if you saw these big elk exclosure fences that run alongside the road. I did. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So these elk exclosure fences, there was one. And you had the gravel road, and then to the left of the gravel road, you had a, an elk exclosure, which is a fence that's probably, I don't know, 10 feet tall or so. And then the river was on the other side of that that elk exclosure. Well, humans are perfectly permitted to go in, into those exclosures. It's just to protect the willows, right? Well, the river, it was probably a not even a half-mile section that was on the other side of that elk exclosure. Yeah. Well, that one section fished exponentially better than the other sections because people just didn't really fish that section much because they thought they weren't allowed in there that's you know that's what we we went in there and fished yeah yeah we went we went in there so this friend of mine that went with me could take a picture of somebody fly fishing that was the whole whole deal behind us running up there yeah Uh, amazing you go up there for four hours just take you know get that one perfect picture that he wanted so bad but 
But uh, so a couple things I remember there. One, there were probably a hundred elk oh, in yeah. there. Yeah. Two, this dude comes riding up. So I'm I'm getting waiters on. This dude comes riding up on a on a horse. He gets off. He opens the gate. He comes out. He is just the typical Western cowboy looking dude. <laughs> uh, so my my friend snapped a picture of him, yeah. him and his horse, and. Uh, he, we, we, I think he might have talked to him. I was still putting my waiters on, but anyway, he snapped a picture of him and, and they went on his way. And my my friend, that was really the picture that came out. That was the best picture of this dude just ride up on his horse and he got off and he was standing beside his horse whenever my my friend took the picture and and uh, so he took it to his his work and was you know showing showing his friends and every lady that saw that picture was just like wow. You know, we need to go out to Rocky Mountain National Park. I don't know who this guy is, but anyway, we we named him Dylan. Uh, we don't we don't know who he is, but but uh, it's a perfect Colorado cowboy name. Oh yeah, yeah, and uh, and and one lady was like, yeah, I need I need to get a uh, I need to get a one of those one of those pictures, and she had it put on a mat. No, and it's hanging in her office at her house. No, no kidding. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so. That was uh, we. He went out there to get a, a some picture of some some guy fly fishing, which would have been me. And he came back with a picture of a a real Western cowboy in yeah. Rocky Mountain. Oaks. But you could see the peaks behind it. Yeah, I mean it's just the perfect it's the perfect setting out there for fly fishing. Yeah. It really is, and yeah. I could see where that would really influence you. And, yeah, and living out there. So you said you guided for a little while out there. I did. Yeah. So um, I started. Uh, there was a fly shop that I would go in and. Um, it wasn't the biggest fly shop in Estes Park, but the guys in there, they were just straight fish heads. You know, the other the other shop was real popular along the main drag and pushing a lot of trips this other place. These dudes were just fishermen, you know. And uh, the owner, Grant, um, he grew up partly in Scotland and partly in Australia. But I'd go in there n- not knowing anything. He'd let me pick his brain while he was doing other stuff. And I'd stroll around looking for the flies. I'd pick up a fly, ask him a question about it. And he was just really... He wasn't, I wouldn't say he was super friendly to everybody, but for some reason he just, I would ask questions and he would answer them. And there was a head guide in there named Mike Oatley, which uh, was, he was awesome too. So anyway, after spending some time in there, I, I was working four tens for the park service. So I had three day weekends and I was just completely eaten up with, with it by now, you know? And so I went in there and I said, you know, do you, do you ever need any help guiding? And he said, I, have you ever guided before? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, good. And then, you know, he said something to the effect of, uh, I, I know you're a fish head and you don't stink as far as, <laughs> as far as I know. And, uh, you seem nice enough. So, you know, let's, let's see what we can do with you. And so that's how it started. So a nice, clean smelling, possibly guy. And we're going to make it a guide out of him. I guess that, that checks all the boxes, you know, at least so. to start with. <laughs> and, um, so, yeah, so anyway, I was on the bottom of the totem pole, of course. I was the new kid. I was 20, 22. And um, so he, he pretty much told me, if you want to start guiding on those off days, just kind of be, be ready for me to call you the night before. And, you know, if you want to take the trips, then uh, then I'll give them to you. So I made up my mind that I did not want to get out there and not know what was going on. You know, if people were paying me to take them fishing, I wanted to know, I wanted to know what was going on. So the way I treated those weekends was – I would wait, and if he called me, 
and offered me a trip, I took it. And a lot of times, you know, it was trips that maybe the other guys didn't necessarily want. It was maybe it was kids or it was almost always people that had never fly fished before. And so if he didn't call me for a trip, I would, um, I would spend the day trying to find, and actually in instinctive fly fishing, he talks about this, trying to find a section of river, uh, that was my favorite section for guiding a left-handed person or my favorite section for guiding somebody that couldn't walk or get around very well. And so that's kind of how I almost treated those weekends, even though I wasn't guiding or getting paid for them. Instead of just going out to fish, I tried to treat them, you know, because you get used to a section and it becomes kind of automatic to you. Absolutely. So I tried to kind of, you know, and my, the first few trips were eye-opening. <laughs> you know, we talked about we talked about knots earlier. I remember the first time somebody, you know, I tied up their whole setup, let's go fishing, you know. They cast and, of course, get hung up pretty quick, break the fly off or got tangled or something, and I had to, I had to re-tie the leader. And that's the first time I ever thought, I have got to get quicker at tying, tipping onto my leader because this guy's staring at me and he's paid money and, and I'm fumbling around, you know. Yeah, I've got an audience. Yeah, yeah. All of Changes a sudden, yeah. all of a sudden, everything's changed. Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. So that's all, you know, that's all kind of included in, in why Rocky Mountain was influential because it, yeah, it was awesome fishing, loved doing it on my off time. And then when I started guiding, um, that, you know, that forced me to, to do things I wouldn't have done if I was just fishing for myself, you know. That's a that's a great place out there because you've got 450 miles of rivers and, and probably 150 or over 150 lakes. And yep. so you really kind of got a smorgasbord of, of, uh, of opportunity out there oh, yeah. to, to take people. And to, you can get away, you know, from everybody up there. I mean, you oh, can yeah. get into some places where where there's not going to be another fisherman. For, for sure. Forever or yeah. feel like forever. So if you're you're living in these cabins, which I I think is hilarious, <laughs> um, that that because uh, I don't I didn't know you then at all when no. I was out there a few years ago. Yeah. Uh, so all right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna. So those those are your influences, but I want to know more about the cabin thing too. Yeah, let's go. So all that wildlife is there, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of wildlife there. If you've never been there, you really do need to go. And we went yes. in May. Yeah, we went in May. And was, so the elk were still in the oh, meadow. Oh, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So I can I can imagine waking up in the morning and opening the door, and there's a bunch of elk, you know, kind of wandering oh, yeah. around a trout stream. Yep. So oh, yeah. what about the wildlife out there? Yeah. Uh, so the elk, the elk were constant. I mean, they do go up higher depending on the year. You know, it's when it starts to dry out and get warmer. So I, I guess it's usually July that they start disappearing a little bit. You still see some, but – the herd moves up, you know, but I would, so, you know, there was one, one morning I woke up or it was the middle of the night. It was probably three o'clock in the morning and our place was a one level, just cabin and pretty much one room. And so I woke up, I had left my work boots, my stinky work book boots outside. And I woke up and heard something. I turned around and opened the blinds and there was a, uh, there was a cow elk. Her nose was pressed up against the glass and she had my boot in her mouth. <laughs> So I kind of, you know, rubbed my eyes like, what am I looking at? And then banged on the glass and she dropped it. So stuff like that was happening a lot. Um, I did try to go a garden one year with a fence around it. A little small, you know, almost like a container garden. And it's hard to grow a garden out there anyway when you're used to growing up in Alabama where you can throw seeds in the ground and they just grow. Right. It ain't like that out there. Yeah, the elk finally got a hold of it. Bears 
in the meadow. Okay. So I woke up one morning, um, and a bear had ripped my, I have a camper shell on my Tacoma. Actually, I still have the same Tacoma. Uh, a bear had ripped the screen out of my camper shell. But the craziest bear story is um, the girls that lived next to me worked for the trail crew as well. And they were working in the backcountry all summer. So they would do, I think at the time, they would do eight days on in the backcountry, six days off, you know. And so I walked out one morning had my coffee in my hand and I looked, you know, their house was, let's say 50 yards away from my, my place. And, uh, the screen to one of the windows in the house was ripped, ripped down. I could see it from that far away. So I wandered over there with my coffee and on the outside of the house, there was mud. The screen was ripped. There was black fur in the screen. Uh Oh yeah. (laughs) I peek in the window and there is a, you know, like a little Debbie snack cake. There's some kind of little cookie wrapper on the ground that doesn't have said cookie in it anymore. <laughs> so I go, oh, my gosh. I walk around to the front of the house. I open the front door and the kitchen. That When you walked in the door, you're in the kitchen, completely ransacked. The The refrigerator door was open. Um, there was milk all over the floor. There was a tub of, you know, butter that had been, had a bear snout in it, had been licked out. So a bear had broken in completely ransacked their kitchen and then you know walked out the same window that is crazy it was crazy i was and then of course the thought comes in your head you know is he still in here is he asleep in her bed you know (laughs) right right so they actually had an axe there in the house you know and uh you don't expect most girls to have a you know an axe but they're colorado trail crew girls you know so they had an axe i grabbed the axe walked through the house bear was gone and yeah (laughs) It was wild. That was the craziest. That's probably the craziest uh, bear story that's, from living in the meadow. Well, I hate to sound this way, but better their house than yours. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's definitely true. That that's 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 crazy because just just the fact that you were able to live. I remember looking look, looking at those cabins and telling my buddy, "Man, I it'd be cool just to stay there, yeah. you know, for a while and just." And then here you are. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. Crazy. And you know what's cool? Those, those private cabins, those were, and honestly, right after I moved, so that, that it became a park in 1915, I'm pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Those private cabins were there before it became a park. Oh, okay. But I think, I, I, I could be saying this wrong, but uh, it, when I left, so when I left Rocky, it was 20, I think 2011, late 2011. But when I left, Everybody was saying that those contracts were up in 2015. Hundred year, they were hundred year 100 easements year contracts, or contracts yeah. or whatever. Yeah. And um, so I just thought, how terrible would that be if, you know, if you if you grew up, if you were my age and that was Grandpa's house, and then oh. it gets taken from you. You know, I mean, it just it just seemed like it was a tough situation. So I don't know if that actually happened. I don't know if it got tied up in courts. I don't know, but those were private cabins. Wow, and that's a long way back in the early 1900s. Yeah, from it's a long way from anything. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like my Estes Park was probably they probably didn't even have a, a taffy shop in Estes Park at that time. Oh, probably. Not. <laughs> yeah, and now there are multiple. You know, right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, Dan, uh, I sure appreciate you uh, talking with us today. So, uh, just kind of a quick recap: uh, your papa really kind of kicked you off and got you started. And, started you down the path and then you went to Gatlinburg and bought you a fly rod and started fly fishing then you read a book 
uh, got a little better and ended up and wound up in uh, Rocky Mountain National Park building walls, uh, stone walls, and uh, and then ended up in a fly shop, started guiding for them, and, and I can just see how this path keeps going and going and going and going. But one thing that you said early, early on uh, about your papaw was you said, one, that, that the lake was really, really deep, made in a canyon, but then mm-hmm. you followed that up with – uh, the Carolina rig with the heavy weight. And mm-hmm. I was just like, okay, Papaw really knew what Papaw was doing because if you're going to fish down in a, in a, in a super deep lake, your lake, you're going to need some, some pretty heavy lead. Yeah. And he, you know, he had buddies that, that would fish tournaments. Papaw was never really super into fishing any tournaments, but I remember being eight or nine years old and sitting around us all spending the night at Papaw's me and my eight year old cousin and 10 year old brothers and then the younger ones too. But Papaw would say, oh, I went and talked to this one tournament guy who used to win all these tournaments. He told me exactly how to fish the Carolina rig, and this is how we're going to do it. And he was talking about tactics even at an early age. So he's eating. He's still eating up with it. He's still eating up with it. He loves it. <laughs> well, I hope he gets a chance to listen to this, or at least you can tell him about it. Oh, he's going to listen uh, to it for sure. Uh, but I appreciate you coming by. It's been like a said. pleasure. Pleasure. You've been listening to Southeastern Fly, the Angler's Influence. I'm David Perry, and uh, we've been talking with Dan Munger, the owner of Fly Fishing Made Easy. You can find that at flyfishingmadeeasy.com. And uh, hope to see you next week. Thanks.